Good morning. Welcome to all those who joined us on site and online this morning. We're in week two of our new series where we're looking at this idea of grace, this concept of grace from God's point of view. Now, I think at a basic level, we all know that word grace and have a basic definition of it. But the idea here is over the next four weeks, we're going to look at four different parables that Jesus gave us that relate to grace with the hope that we'll come to a, a deeper understanding, maybe, maybe push into some deeper aspects and implications of just how amazing God's grace is. And today, we're going to focus upon what grace looks like when sometimes we might think or feel like grace isn't fair. Now, that's actually akin to one of the very first lessons that we learn in life. It's one of the first lessons we learn is that sometimes life isn't fair. And yet, even though we learn this lesson early, early in life, we tend to cling to this belief that, generally speaking, people get what they deserve. And we know that that's how our world tends to work. If you put a dollar into a vending machine, you should get a bag of chips that falls out. If you work hard at your job, you should be the one who gets promoted. If you're kind to your neighbor, who's not always necessarily kind to you, you would hope that eventually over time that that would be returned to you as kindness as well. But what do we know? We know sometimes the dollar gets jammed in the machine. We know sometimes we get passed over for the promotion. We know sometimes we got to put up with Karen down the hall because no matter how nice we are to her, it's just not going to come back to us in kind. Those of us perhaps who own uh, houses with front sidewalks understand this in the wintertime really well, where you shovel your driveway and you get to the sidewalk and you're faced with the choice and the question, do I shovel my sidewalk up to the property line because Dale's a busy guy and, and Dale perhaps doesn't have time to come do it, or do I push on and do the whole sidewalk down to kind of pass Dale's driveway too? Now, most of us, we are good, good, honest Christian stewards and, and citizens in the world. And so we decide the right thing to do, the kind thing to do, is to do the entire sidewalk right down to Dale's driveway. We shovel it, we, we ice melt it, we groom that to the point where it looks like winter never came to Edmonton. And we go, there you go, Dale, you're welcome. We go to sleep, it snows, we wake up, there's a huge dump of fresh snow. Dale got up early to go to work and he shoveled. You can hear him shoveling and you're like, Dale is returning the favor. And you go outside and it's like Dale hired a survey team to make sure he knew where the property line was and just did his part. What do you say? That's not fair. This is what we learn is how the world works sometimes. But it, it basically, this phrase comes up whenever there's a gap between what we believe should be and what actually is. We then fill that gap with the words, that's not fair. And because we live in a merit-based world, we can also sometimes have a tendency to apply that to our relationship with God as well. You see, when someone rejects Jesus' call upon their lives to, to come follow him, we might say, well, it's too bad. You missed out on the blessings, that's how it works. But, but for others who wholeheartedly embrace the call to follow Jesus, we might think as well, well, I can expect incredible rewards for my efforts. And while it is true that there are rewards that wait for the faithful in heaven, perhaps not for the manner, nor for the reason that we expect. You see, because the kingdom of heaven is based upon grace, 
And it only appears unfair when we dare to compare. See, the kingdom of heaven is based upon grace, and it only appears unfair when we dare to compare. And the parable we're going to look at today at the beginning of Matthew chapter 20 is going to unpack this and explain this principle for us a little bit further. But before we look at the parable, let me give you a bit of context as to what happens that leads up to this parable because the two are completely kind of bookending the parable. You see, just a few verses earlier in Matthew 19, Jesus has just finished a conversation with who we kind of know as the young rich ruler who came to Jesus and says, Jesus, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And it's a question that presumes that heaven is a merit-based system. What good thing must I do? Good must beget good, so I need to do more of it if I'm going to find myself in heaven. And Jesus begins answering this young man's question by establishing the standard of goodness, which he, he refers to the Ten Commandments. Now, this young man knew the Ten Commandments, and, and he had kept all ten of the commandments and, and the, you know, some additional ones in the forefront of all of his dealings with people. And yet, even though he had done all that, he still asked the question, because he knows I'm doing all of that, but there must be more. What is that more? What more good thing must I do? And Jesus knows the problem. Jesus knows that the issue is where he's placed his trust, that he's trusted in his wealth, what, what he can accumulate, the merits that he can achieve on his own. And so Jesus goes, well, you need to give that all up. Why don't you try trusting in me? Instead of all of that stuff. And, and the man is shocked by this. And the Bible tells us that he was so dismayed that he went away very, very sad because he was unwilling to make God first in his life. And Jesus then responds with an often misunderstood statement that draws a reaction from his disciples who are watching this conversation take place. And he says in Matthew 19, verse 24, he says, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's a hard saying. But here's where it fits in the relevance of what was happening in this setting. You see, there was a common belief in this time and place that wealth was evidence of God's favor. And so if this virtuous, rich man could not gain eternal life, well, then what possible hope was there for the rest of us? If it was impossible for him, what is going to be of the rest of us? And so Peter, on behalf of the disciples, asked Jesus a question he says, Jesus, we have left everything. We don't have nearly as much as this guy had, and he can't make it in. We've left everything, have nothing left to give. What then is there for us? Now, Jesus calms their fears and, and, and says, guys, it's not hopeless. He reassures them they will be richly rewarded when they enter into eternity. He says to them, yes, guys, when the Son of Man sits on his throne in the kingdom of heaven, you will enter into eternity with him as well. But, but then he adds, you know, anyone, actually, anyone who puts me first, who decides to follow after me, will inherit eternal life and more. Well, Jesus could probably see the wheels turning in Peter's head already as he's doing the mental math on that word more. Because we followed you first, Jesus. We followed you the longest. We've been the closest. We've given up everything. We've, we've given up the most. Imagine what more looks like for us. 
And then to catch this thinking, to, 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 to correct this thinking, Jesus drops this little nugget on him. He goes, but, but guys, but, but many who are first, y'all who are first will be last, and the many who are last will be first. It's a puzzling statement that confuses them. But Jesus, but, but we're first. Why, why would we be last? There's a gap between what they think should be and what actually is, and what do they fill the gap with? That's not fair. And so to further unpack what Jesus meant here, to show them how the kingdom of heaven is not based upon merit, but it's based upon grace, he shares with them this parable in Matthew chapter 20. A parable about a man who owned a vineyard. And he needed workers to come and help him to bring in the harvest. And so in verse 1 and 2 of Matthew 20 we read, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers in his vineyard. And he agreed to pay them one denarius for the day's work. Now this scenario speaks to the real life hard facts of first century Palestinian Jews where there was very, very high unemployment. And, and most people in, in this time did not have these regular jobs you would get up to and go to every day. But no, instead, the men in the ha- family would get up, and they would get up early and head out to the market, and they would stand in the town square and just wait for someone to hire them. And if they did find jobs for the day, they would tend to be exhausting labor jobs where they would physically just have to work hard for 12 hours. The, the typical workday was 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And at the end of that hard, long, physical laboring day, they would hold up their hand and the man would put a single denarius for pay, which was the typical pay of the day. Not a lot of money. But that single denarius was enough money that they could go home and buy food for their family for the next day. And so after 12 hours of hard work, they would take their coin and on the way home walk by the marketplace and, and buy a little bit of flour, grain that they can make some bread with, maybe, maybe a couple small fish. If it was your, your daughter's birthday, you might find a little raisin cake, just something special to enjoy. You would take that home and as a family, you'd have dinner and spend the evening together and go to sleep, some leftovers for breakfast, but then it's gone. You have to get up again and go back to the marketplace and just hope and pray that somebody would hire you so that you could do it all over again. So this landowner needs workers, and there's no lack of willing people to come work for him. They're just lacking an invitation. So he hires a crew at 6 a.m. to come work in his field. Well, the landowner goes back into town around 9 a.m., and he sees others that are just standing there waiting for someone to invite them. So he offers them to come join him in his vineyard as well. And as he invites them, he goes, and I will pay you whatever is right. And he repeats this throughout the day. He goes back in at noon. And at 3, even at 5 p.m., he goes back in and sees those who are waiting to get hired still. And he says to the guys, why have you been standing around here all day? Don't you want to work? It's no fault of our own. We're willing We're here, we're waiting, we're needing, but nobody is asking. He says, well, the day's almost over, but I have a lot of work to do, and the work in my vineyard cannot wait. Come work for me. And even this late in the day, they don't dare to ask, well, what's the pay? They just need something. They just want something. And so they place their full trust in the landowner that he will pay them what is right. 
Now, the landowner spends the entire day hiring workers, five crews and all to come work in his vineyard. And at the end of the day, the whistle blows, 6 p.m., it's time to set up our accounts. So in verse 8, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call all the workers in and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and then going to the first. This likely irritated those who have been there since 6 a.m. They've been there for 12 hours. They just want their money and go home. But they're at the back of the line. But as irritated as they may be by that, it's about to get worse. You see, everyone's done the mental math in their head. They know that one day equals one denarius. If I've been here for 12 hours, I get one denarius. That was the agreement. Everyone else who came afterwards, it's prorated. I'm not sure how they're going to snip those things, get little fractions and pieces, but it's prorated. One day equals one denarius. Well, when the first person steps forward, who was hired at 5 p.m., he holds out his hand, not sure what they're going to give him. The foreman drops a denarius in his hand. Oh, no, sir, that must be a mistake. I was, I was hired at 5 p.m., and this is one denarius. I didn't, I didn't earn this. The foreman says, I'm paying you what is right. That's right. I'm paying you what is right. Thank you. Just overjoyed with excitement that he was so generously rewarded for that hour of work. The others see this in line. And they're like, is there a new pay scale that got implemented? Like like one hour now equals one denarius? Like, Like did we unionize during the day at some point? Like, was there a vote and a negotiation that I missed? <laughs> like, one day, hour now equals one denarius? And everyone quickly recalculates in their head what they're going to get, especially the 6 a.m. crew. They're not so irritated now. 12 denarius? I'm taking my wife on a vacation. But as they each step forward, the 3 o'clock crew, the noon crew, the 9 a.m. crew, each of them, the foreman says, here's what is right. A single denarius. As this happens, as this continues, the longer it goes on, the more and more cheated the people at the back of the line feel. Until the 6 a.m. crew gets to the front, and they know they're not getting 12 by this point, but they're thinking, I need something more than one. One is not enough. And when they receive just one denarius, they, 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 they get mad. And they kind of huddle together and they start grumbling about the boss. That guy thinks he knows what he's doing. He's making money off my hard work. And finally they say to him in verse 12, These men who were hired last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. They look at their single denarius. They say, we worked more hours. We endured more heat. We worked harder as we had to prepare the land in the way for these guys who came in later in the day. We are dirty and sore and exhausted. We have blisters on our hands. And you make us equal to these guys who didn't even break a sweat. That's not fair. If you have ever had an hourly job, a commission job, a maybe a piecework kind of job, you can kind of sympathize with what these guys are saying. 
You know, I, I used to have this one job when I first got married where I would go up to this little factory and make flagging tape. It's these rolls of vinyl tape that they use in the forest industry to, to mark trees in, in the forest. And so I would go up there and I would make this vinyl flagging tape. And I was told I would get paid $1.20 per case. And so I knew. When I got up there, I just, I just walk in there and I crank up my music and turn on the machine. And I knew that I could bang out 10 cases an hour. an hour, and based upon how much money the family needed, I would stay as many hours as I needed to stay to make sure $12 an hour, $1.20 uh, per case, equals what we needed. And I knew that's what I would get paid, and that's what I got paid. (laughs) Sorry for taxes, that's another misservant. So that's what I got paid. It was predictable, it was fair. My first sales job. I had a salary with an annual bonus. My annual bonus was based upon a percentage of all the sales I did throughout the year. So I went into sales, and I did really, really well. And I was so happy to go into my boss's office that last day of the year with my sales report. Look at all the stuff I sold for you. Give my bonus. He looked at it, because I didn't think he'd sell this much. I can't afford to pay you that. I was like, Whoa. It was your agreement, your system, give me what's mine. I can't afford to pay you that. That's not fair. We can understand why these guys are upset by this. But the owner overhears their complaint. And he he graciously but firmly wants to reason with them. He says, friends, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Am I not free, allowed to do what I want to choose to do with what belongs to me? I promised you a denarius for a day, and I'm offering you a denarius for a day. That's what I have promised. You've received what was promised for the work that was promised when it was promised. I've kept my word to you. No one was cheated here. But I have a question for you. Am I not free to do more than I had promised? Like I, I agree with you guys, I can't do less than I was promised. But am I not free to do more than I promised? And the owner asked them then, do you begrudge my generosity? Do you begrudge my generosity? Literally, that phrase translated is an ancient Near Easter saying that says, is your eye evil? Is what it literally means. Is your eye evil? What that referred to to them is, is somebody who coveted, just enviously coveted what somebody else had. There was, they were said to have an evil eye. And that's kind of what's taking place here. Because in the morning at 6 a.m., when these guys were told, you work for the day, I'll give you a single denarius, they looked at that denarius and they said, that is enough money for me to feed my family. That is enough money that when I get home, I will be seen as the provider. And they were happy. And they were content with that arrangement. But now, because of the landowner's generosity to somebody else, they perceive that they deserve more that their work was of a higher value, that somehow by them being equal, it devalues what they've done. We should receive more. We deserve more. Even being equal feels like less, and that's not fair. 
then to conclude this parable, Jesus again says to his disciples, so the last will be first and the first will be last. Now, this parable is not a good model for labor relations. <laughs> this parable is not a good model or a good blueprint for economics or, or for the business world. Don't go to work tomorrow and say, guys, I figured out our money problems. I heard this parable at church yesterday, and we're just going to do that. No, you'll probably have a revolt on your hands from your employees. But remember, that, that's okay. That, that's how the world works. Remember how Jesus prefaced this, ent- this entire parable? He prefaced it all by saying, this is how the kingdom of heaven works. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. You see, and in the kingdom of heaven, all who respond to the grace of God's kingdom invitation are equal. All who respond to the grace of God's kingdom invitation are equal. Now to some, disciples who have served longer, harder, who have given up more, who have endured the most, that might not feel like it's fair. You see, the landowner is like God who needs workers, these followers of Jesus Christ, to go out into the earth to prepare the way of the kingdom of heaven. And the harvest that, he's, that we're speaking of here, which Jesus also talks about in Matthew 9, verse 36, is the field we go to, is the world, where there are many, many people who are ready to hear and to accept the good news. And who are the workers that get sent into the field? Anybody who accepts Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Anybody who was willing to follow and serve him in the path of new life. Now, all people come to that in different ways and in different timings and with different struggles. We all come to be workers in different ways, times, and struggles. But the reward is the same. What is the reward? That denarius. It's the same for all people because that, that, that is symbolic of this gift of eternal life, which is the presence of God, presence of Jesus with us now in this life and in the life to come. And by the fact that he grants that to us, we have become regular workers in God's harvest. But even though we're regular workers in his harvest, he still pays us our daily bread. Our daily bread is our reward because it reminds us each and every single day that we cannot just sort of accumulate and hoard and, and build up and, and amass and then take some sort of confidence and pride in what we can accomplish. No, it reminds us that every day when we open our eyes, we need to get up and we need to go to work in God's field. And the only way we can do that is by placing our full trust in the owner. Full trust that, first of all, he will not pay us what we deserve. He will not pay us what we earn because the Bible tells us that what we actually earn, what our sin actually earns is separation from him. So we place our full trust in him believing that we will not gain that, but rather by grace, by the unmerited favor of God that he will give us what has been promised. He will give us what is right. And what was promised and what was right is eternal life. We read about this in Titus chapter 3 where it says, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope 
of eternal life. You see, that's what Jesus declares as right. And that's what he declares as right for all people who respond to the grace of God's kingdom invitation. And and many of us accept that on a theological level, on a cognitive level, we say, yes, that is right. But there are still some who relate to the all-day workers who go, but it's not fair. It's because we expect rewards and recognition to be proportionate. That's, that's how the world works in which we live. That's how we're used to it. We, we expect the pie to be sliced accordingly. Now, there were two brothers who were eating lunch together. It was prepared by mom before she went to run errands. And after they finished their sandwiches, they saw that she had left them two pieces of pie on two different plates. And as they looked closer, one was a little bigger than the other. So the younger brother, who finished his sandwich first, reached out and took the bigger piece of pie. To which his older brother goes, oh, hey, don't you know it's appropriate, it's proper to take the smaller piece first? To which the younger brother paused and thought, well, okay, I didn't know that lesson, but, but brother, which one would you have taken? Well, I would have taken the smaller one, of course. Well, then what are you complaining about? That's the one you've got. So, you see, end of the argument, but certainly not end of the hard feelings that come from a situation like that. Why? Because our expectations die hard. But since we can all accept, come to accept at least hopefully, that that we all receive grace at different times, different places, different ways, different efforts, what would a proper response be? What would a proper response to God's grace in that fashion be? Well, I think there's three key things that a proper response includes. And the first one is this. It's gratitude. It begins, a proper response begins with understanding and accepting that God owes us nothing. And that anything we receive from him is already too much. You see, when the 6 a.m. workers were hired, they were grateful to the landowner that he had chosen them. They knew that they would be able to look after their families. They'd be able to buy food, and and it would bring some security to their lives for a period of time. And it gave them a sense of joy and contentment, and they were thankful to the landowner. They probably had words in their hearts akin to what David says in Psalm 63, where he says, Because your love is like no other, it is better than life itself. My lips will glorify you, I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. Words like this were probably going through their minds and their hearts while they worked in the vineyard. But when they started to feel like they deserved more than they had been promised, that gratitude and contentment started to fade away. You see, they lost sight of the fact that life with the landowner was pretty good. He had brought them into his house, He had given them security and hope and provisions for the future. And that there were many others who were still standing on the sidewalk. Not in a state of comfort and security and hope because of the landowner, but standing on the sidewalk, free, yes, to do whatever they want. Not having to work hard and do some of those things, but also filled with anxiety. What am I going to do? How am I going to provide for myself and my family? What possible thing could I, could I pull together? How am I going to bring food home? I need someone to come and save me. On a spiritual level, there are many people I speak to who come to faith later in life. 
And I can't think of a single case where the person says, you know, I could have waited. Every single time I can ever think of, when somebody comes to faith later in life, they say, no, they say, I wish I had done that sooner. Because it's just so amazing, the experience, the transformation that happens when they come to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. They celebrate and they're thankful for every day thereafter, wishing that they had more days before where they no longer had to sit on the street corner hoping somebody would hire them to work in the vineyard, but instead could have been brought in to the owner's family sooner. See, gratitude is a natural response to the goodness of God's grace. And once we experience it, it then leads to the second appropriate response. And that is a concern for others. You see, when we know the incredible value and gratitude that we have because of God's grace in our lives, it should paint and create sort of a stark contrast between, between the life that we experience with Jesus and the life that people experience without him. And knowing the implications of that should cause great concern in us. So that we want them to experience life with Jesus. You know, in other areas of our world, if we go to a wonderful restaurant or if we go to a, see a great movie on TV, an art exhibit, go on a vacation, we come back and it's like going to post pictures all over Facebook and share that with everyone I can meet. We, we tell people stories and we say, I can't wait to go back. You, you guys should come with us. You, you should go yourselves sometime and just try it for yourselves. With restaurants and movies and, and, and vacations, we're very free to do that, but not always with, with Jesus. Now, sometimes it's just, it's just a bit of a fear and an uncertainty of how to proceed with that. And this might surprise you, though, but there are some people I've talked to, some who I've met, who say, you know what? I don't think that person deserves to know. Now, I tried to share with them once, but they rejected any, any effort. And, and you know, I, I look at their lives, and it's just corrupt. I, I think they're disqualified from even hearing the story of Jesus. And, when I, and I've heard people say this before, and I press them a little further why. And, and the heart of their why is because, well, if God granted them a denarius after all they have done, and if God forgives them and brings them into his vineyard to work and accepts them into his family, wouldn't that tarnish all that I've done? Thankfully, I don't hear that too often, but I do hear it sometimes. But as we look around our offices, our schools, if we're sitting on a bus or in traffic somewhere, if we're in the grocery store waiting to buy some items, we look at all the people that are around us who, many of them, don't know Jesus. They don't have their denarius. Be overwhelmed by that. Be overwhelmed with concern for that because there is a day coming when there will no longer be an opportunity to share that story with them. There will no longer be an opportunity where they can find their food, where they can find nourishment for themselves and for those around them. There will come a day when they will simply perish. That's not God's desire for anyone. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord may appear at times to be slow in keeping his promises. These promises that he will immediately grant to somebody the denarius when they repent. And so others say it's the promise when the day will finally come when there's no more opportunity. But instead, don't see him as being slow. See him as being patient. Because he doesn't want anyone to perish. But he wants everyone to come to repentance. 
The sacrifice of Jesus has been made. The harvest is ready. The only thing that is missing is the workers to go do their job. Think of the guys standing in the marketplace all day with worry, anxiety, hunger in their bellies. It should concern us if no one has invited them to come under the care of the master. Some will refuse the invitation, but at least they had the opportunity to refuse. But I think we might just be surprised at how many say yes. And when they say yes, we find our third response, which is to rejoice. We rejoice when one crosses over into new life with Jesus Christ. See, it's not a competitive thing. It's, it's not a comparison thing. It doesn't devalue anything that God may have granted to us. We still maintain our gratitude. But we celebrate with heaven that new life has been received into a person's life. That the harvest has been brought in. Because the harvest has been brought in, more workers can be sent out in the field. So that more people can reveal the grace, truth, and love of Jesus Christ to all. As Jesus said in Luke 15, in the same way I tell you, there is more rejoicing of the angels. Excuse me. Excuse me. There is more rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. We can rejoice when the harvest is brought in and more workers are sent out to share the good news of Jesus. Now, we see this vividly move from parable to real life in the ministry of Jesus, even right up to his final dying breath. I want to leave you with this today. One of the well-known aspects of the crucifixion is that when Jesus was nailed to the cross, there were a thief on either side of him as well. We can read about that in Luke chapter 23. And the thief on one side ridicules him. Jesus, it seems like you're able to save others throughout your life, but now you can't even save yourself, yet alone us. Some kind of Messiah you are. But on the other side comes Jesus' defense. Not that he needed it, but to stop it. Back off. We earned our spot on this cross. He doesn't deserve what's happening to him. He's innocent. Leave him alone. And then he turns his attention to Jesus. And he says, Jesus, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus' response to him, one of the final things Jesus said from the cross, is, says, truly I tell you this, today you will be with me in paradise. And as both of them struggle in their final breaths, Jesus grants this thief his denarius. The grace of God given by faith. Now, here's the thing. Most of the disciples had scattered at this point and had abandoned Jesus, but there were, there were a few that were still there. You know, John tells us that, that, that he was there and that Jesus interacted with him a little bit from the cross. There could have been some other disciples there as well. As they're watching this and, and, and close enough to witness and to hear these conversations taking place. And, and as Jesus says to this thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. As they heard and saw all this taking place, I, I wonder if, if it went through the disciples' heads, these words of Jesus that he had spoken to them a few months earlier. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. And instead of feeling a sense of, that's not fair that that thief enters into kingdom ahead of me, I don't believe they felt that. I believe as they watched, they looked on in awe at how awesome God's grace is. 
and we're filled with gratitude because it is a kingdom of grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have graciously invited all of us to come into your kingdom, to know you, to serve you, to be forgiven of, of all of those the, the sins that have strived to separate us from you, that you have dealt with those, and that by our faith placed in your grace, that you can wipe that clean. God, I pray that as we consider that, how undeserving we are of your sacrifice, that any sense of comparison that may come up between us and other fellow followers of Christ within the church or in other churches or in the community, that that would all just melt away. That, Lord, we would simply just be grateful for the offering that you made for all of us. That we'd be filled with concern for those who do not yet know you and that we'd strive to bring them in for the purpose of rejoicing and celebrating. That you would be honored, that you would be glorified, that your kingdom would expand and that your harvest would be bountiful. God, I pray for those who may be listening either on site or online here right now who do not have a relationship with you. They know they're still standing in the marketplace. Lord, for those who feel that way right now, may they hear the invitation now to surrender your life to Jesus. To say, thank you, Jesus, for giving your life to pay the price for my sins, those things that separate me from God. Thank you, Jesus, that your sacrifice was sufficient to pay the price. I don't earn it. I didn't deserve it. But I understand, Lord, that you freely offer it. You've deemed it what is right in my life. Lord, those who need to pray that prayer confess those words. I just ask, Father, that they would make themselves known online and on site here, that we can continue to journey with them, that we would continue to grow in what it means to have new life with Jesus Christ. We pray this all in your name.